Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to have Jared Diamond on the show, and we'll be talking about a book that he has edited with James A. Robinson called Natural Experiments of History. Say you wanted to find out what the effect of capitalism versus socialism was on an economy and culture. How might you go about doing that? Well, if you were an experimental scientist, you could take a country with a relatively homogeneous culture and history, divide it in two, and institute a capitalist economy on one side and a socialist economy on the other. And then you would watch to see how the two differed. That would give you some understanding of the impact of capitalism and socialism because you would have set all other variables other than the kind of economy aside. Unfortunately, you can't do this. But fortunately, it was done for us by history. In the case of Germany, East and West Germany were a kind of natural experiment in the impact of different sorts of economic systems. In this really terrific book, Jared Diamond explains how historians and other social scientists can discover natural experiments and what they can learn from them. He also says that we should restructure the way in which we train graduate students and the way in which we practice history ourselves so that it is built around, or at least in principle part around, natural experiments or the comparative method. I really enjoyed talking to Jared Diamond today, and I certainly think that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Professor Diamond. Good morning, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? I'm just fine, and how are you? Well, I think you know a little bit about how I am. We had a We've had an ice storm here in Iowa, and uh, they're very beautiful. I I don't know if you've ever seen one, but uh, everything is covered in about, uh, I'd say, a quarter inch of ice. So really, it's quite a beautiful spectacle. Unfortunately, everything grinds to a stop. So I think you also know a little bit about how I am, which is that I'm in the middle now of the heaviest rainstorm of the year around my house in Los Angeles, and the street in front of my house is a river, and eventually when we finish talking and I go downstairs, I will discover whether the basement of my house is or is not flooded. Well, I hope that it's not. Somewhere, I think we can be sure it is uh, sunny and warm, but just not in uh, Los Angeles or uh, Iowa City, Iowa. (laughs) In New Guinea, I'm sure. In New Guinea it is, yes. Well, again, I should tell our listeners that we have uh, Professor Jared Diamond on the show today, and we'll be discussing a book that he has co-edited with James A. Robinson, a book that I enjoyed very much, and I think that uh, all historians and people that think about history should read. It's called Natural Experiments of History, and in due time we will explain what a natural experiment is. It's a thing that is very worth knowing about, and I want to thank Professor Diamond and uh, Professor Robinson for putting the book together. Um, Professor Diamond, perhaps you could begin by simply telling us a little bit about yourself. Yes, my life history, I would say, prepared me um, for an interest in history. I was born in 1937, so I grew up during World War II, and that meant my father pinning up on the walls of my bedroom maps with pins to mark the advance of the European and Pacific theater. So I grew up with geography and history in my face. Um, As an undergraduate um, at Harvard while I was pre-med, I nevertheless um, studied history under Bernard Balin, who at that point was sweating out tenure. I then had four years in Harvard Society of Fellows under Crane Brinton, so I had a lot of exposure to historians. I did my PhD in uh, Cambridge, England during the late 50s, early 60s, and again, history is in your face in Europe at that time. Since then, I've been pursuing two careers. One, as a membrane physiologist, my expertise was on salt and water transport by the gallbladder. 
a subject of great historical import. <laughs> and my other area of specialty was New Guinea birds. Working in New Guinea with all of these thousand New Guinea tribes, they're really smart, interesting people. And I had to ask myself, why did these amazing people end up with stone tools while I, the European who comes in there and can't even light a fire when it's raining in the forest? Um, why was I coming in there with metal tools? So New Guinea really got me interested in questions of long-term history. Finally, about seven years ago, I closed my UCLA laboratory of gallbladder physiology research moved over to the geography department, and nowadays I would call myself a geographer or environmental historian, writing books and papers on long-term, large-scale comparative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in history talk about uh, interdisciplinarity, but I don't think any historian um, that I've ever talked to has a, his, a, a sort of experience with it like that. That, that is truly interdisciplinary, and I, I think in the very strongest and most laudatory sense. So it's funny because when I was an undergraduate, I studied biology quite a bit and really enjoyed it. Um, I think everybody uh, who uh, matriculates as a freshman starts um, – every ambitious person who starts as a freshman is, uh, is pre-med, and then they find out that um, not to uh, cast aspersions on any of my doctor friends, but uh, being a doctor is a little bit like being a mechanic. Not that being a mechanic is interesting either. But uh, I also moved away from that, and I studied biology and history and other things. And I've come back to the biology uh, in later years, and, and I found it very interesting. I think that some of the most interesting work in the sciences is being done today in biology. So that's a big pitch for, uh, I guess I'd call it strong interdisciplinarity. Um, uh, tell me uh, how you came to edit with James A. Robinson this particular book, Natural Experiments of History. It came from several pieces of background. One is that as a scientist, I've been, as a biologist, I've studied not only gallbladders on which you can do experiments, but New Guinea birds on which it is illegal and immoral and often impractical to do experiments. So I had to figure out different ways of learning things about New Guinea birds. And the technique is the natural experiment. That's to say, while I cannot go exterminate a bird population on one mountain to see what's the ecological impact of that bird, what I can do is take natural experiments. Different New Guinea mountains have different groups of birds, and I can compare mountains that have the long-tailed, ribbon-tailed bird of paradise with mountains that do not have the ribbon-tailed bird of paradise. That's taking a natural experiment rather than a manipulative experiment to learn, and I'm accustomed to that in biology. Mm -hmm. I met James Robinson, a great economist and political scientist now at Harvard, and it turns out that Jim, um, as basically a student of human societies, has been doing studying natural experiments to understand human history. Both of us are struck by the fact that among the disciplines studying human societies, and that means historians, sociologists, political scientists, economists, anthropologists, historians are really very distinctive. And we thought that it would be profitable for historians to make use of this technique of natural experiments that are routine among sociologists, economists, political scientists, and so on. So Jim Robinson and I have now put together this edited volume with seven chapters, each of us doing one chapter and then five other authors doing other chapters to showcase natural experiments and to illustrate different ways in which you can use the comparative method and quantitation and even statistical analyses to understand human history. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could tell us what a natural experiment is, and I'm thinking that you might give an example from a, a book that I'm sure many of our listeners know, Gun, Germs, and Steel, which involves a kind of natural experiment. Yes. A natural experiment can be understood by contrasting it with the usual laboratory experiment, which is also called a manipulative experiment. In a manipulative experiment, it's the standard method of learning things about chemistry and molecular biology, so much so that a molecular biologist would never dream of any other method for obtaining knowledge. In a manipulative experiment, you take two systems that are identical and then you perturb one of them. For example, you take two test tubes with the same chemicals and you add one chemical to one of those test tubes but not the other that is your control. 
you then compare what happens in the two test groups. That's a powerful method for discovering what is the effect of that chemical that you've added, because you know from having set it up yourself that the test groups are identical except for you are adding that chemical. That's a manipulative experiment as practiced by chemists, physicists, and molecular biologists. But there are many areas where we cannot do manipulative experiments. For example, suppose I wanted to find out what gives humans genetic resistance to smallpox. If I were a creature from outer space, it would be simple. I would do a manipulative experiment. I would take 2,000 UCLA undergraduates, inject 1,000 of them with smallpox virus, and inject 1,000 of them with a controlled saline solution, and then see who gets sick and who dies, and in a short time, I would have identified the genetic resistance factors to smallpox. But that's considered illegal, immoral, and frequently impractical. In epidemiology and in field biology, we have to resort to natural experiments. That's to say, instead of taking two test tubes and manipulating them, we look in the natural world for two systems that are as similar as possible, except for differing with respect to the same characteristics that we're hoping to understand. That's the essence of a natural experiment. I use natural experiments in my 1996 book, Guns, Germany, Steel, to understand basically why history unfolded differently in the long run among different continents. Why is it that the long-term history of Eurasia ended up differently from the long-term history of Aboriginal Australia, Native America, and Sub-Saharan Africa? But I think an even cleaner example of a natural experiment is the last chapter of Jim Robinson's My Edited recent Harvard University Press book, Natural Experiments in History. There's been a long-standing debate among historians concerning the effect of Napoleon on developments, including economic developments in Europe. Put crudely, you can say, was Napoleon good or bad for the <laughs> of European society? And there's been an unresolved argument among historians. Some historians say Napoleon was very bad. He made a big mess, and he, he turned upside down a system that worked more or less, so Napoleon was bad for the history of Europe. And they'll cite some particular case study where Napoleon conquered an area, and then they see what happened afterwards, and they say all those bad things were because of Napoleon. Alternatively, other historians say Napoleon was good for the history of Europe. Napoleon wiped away the guilds and the privileges of the church and the aristocracy, and he introduced the Uniform Law Code, and then they'll cite some particular case study of some principality in Germany where Napoleon did conquer the area and then things went well later, so they say, look, that was because of Napoleon. But historians have not resolved from those individual case studies whether Napoleon was good or bad. Well, again, if we were a Martian, a visit from Mars, with a time machine, it would be simple. We would dial on what's now Germany in 1800, <laughs> we would drop Napoleon over different parts of Germany, let Napoleon make his mess in some places and not make a mess in other places, come back 50 years later and see which type of part of Germany was richer, but we don't have time machines. Nevertheless, history has done that experiment. Napoleon really did drop himself over the map of what's now Germany for various dynastic and political reasons. He conquered some areas and other areas he didn't conquer or he put relatives on the throne of those areas that he conquered and changed institutions. Some of them, the areas that were Prussian, left Napoleonic reforms in place and other areas reversed the Napoleonic reforms. So you can compare this natural experiment of areas that were not Napoleonized, areas that were Napoleonized and left Napoleonic changes in place, and areas that were Napoleonized and reversed the changes, mm -hmm. all within Germany. Mm -hmm. Jim mm -hmm. Robinson and Darren S. Moglu and, and um, two of their co-authors, um, Johnson, um, looked at 30 different parts of Germany that did or did not get Napoleonized. And as a measure of wealth, they used urbanization, which is a reasonable measure of wealth because only areas that have high agricultural productivity and good transport systems can become highly urbanized. Mm -hmm. It turns out that as of 1815, just after Napoleonic Wars, the areas that were or were not Napoleonized did not differ in wealth 
It took about 50 years, from 1850 to 1860 onwards, that patchwork of areas that got turned upside down by Napoleon got more and more urbanized and became richer than the areas that were not turned upside down by Napoleon, even though they were a patchwork. Mm-hmm. There were various complications we have to go over, but the prima facie interpretation is that conquest by Napoleon and the Napoleonic reforms when left in place really did promote industrialization and urbanization in Europe. Mm-hmm. Let's take that example and work with it just a little bit. So here we have similar initial conditions, that is the uh, Deutsche Kulturraum, you know, uh, we'll say that uh, sort of one area of Germany is uh, more like another area than it is, say, like New Guinea. Um, and uh, we have a perturbation, and in this case the perturbation is the creation of, let's call them Napoleonic or Enlightenment institutions after the incursion of Napoleon and Napoleon's forces. And we're going to compare the areas within this uh, German cultural space uh, along that axis. Um, what is the uh, result of that comparison? What, what kind of knowledge do you get? What level of generality uh, is generated by that kind of um, comparison? To take your last question first, the level of generality, uh, to the first thing you learn is conclusions about Germany. But one might then wonder, well, was there something special about Germany? And did Napoleon have different effects elsewhere? In fact, Jim and Daron and Simon and David began with a study all over Europe, which led to the conclusion that Napoleon was Napoleon's methods were good for Europe because the earlier comparisons included Portugal and Austria and other places. Mm-hmm. But then they reasoned, having taken this rather diverse database of Europe, there are complications. So let's clean it up and let's look just at Germany. And focusing on what today is Germany, they then came to the same conclusion, but in a cleaner form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. And uh, how do these... Um so these are explanations, so to say, on the particular level of why a certain province, let's say, is wealthier than another. Uh, how do we know, uh, given this method, how do we know that we've identified the correct uh, causal factor or variable? Absolutely, that's a key question, and it's a question that you always have to worry about when you do a natural experiment. Um, scientists who do manipulative experiments should also worry about it. They're less worried about it because they were the one who added the DAR to the test. Mm-hmm. But every now and then in a manipulative experiment, even in a manipulative experiment, you discover that a variable other than the one you thought you were manipulating turns out to be the relevant variable. And a prime example was the Josephson effect in physics, where people thought that they were looking for a certain effect, and instead they discovered that their effect was masked by an effect of temperature. Brian Josephson recognized it and won a Nobel Prize for it. Similarly, in natural experiments in history, but if you think that the explanation of the Napoleonic conquest was something that Napoleon did, maybe it was something different. Maybe instead Napoleon picked areas of Germany that were richer to begin with, and that's why they ended up mm-hmm. urban ones. So you got to test that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Jim and Daron and David did is they looked at the measures of urbanization in Germany before Napoleon came in. Is it the case when Napoleon simply picked most promising areas of Germany? And it turns out, no, he picked the least promising areas mm-hmm. just by chance. Mm-hmm. The areas that he picked um, for his reforms were less urbanized, and therefore, even despite that, they ended up richer. Mm-hmm. That just illustrates that the point you raised is always a key one. Maybe the explanatory factor is some other one. And so you always have to test those other possible explanations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that in my own work, I've done some comparative work myself, uh, that the identification of these confounding variables is uh, very tricky. It's also very tricky to explain to people how one sets them aside. Historians tend to go back to certain kinds of explanations, and even when you explain to them that they can't really be the effective cause of something, they still return to them. It's, it's kind of force of habit. Um, one of them is culture. People will constantly say, well, there was a cultural difference that you haven't seen or that you could not account for, and this is actually 
behind uh, what you see in this place. Um, but nonetheless, I think there are rigorous ways to do this. I was reminded while reading of your, your book something that I read as an undergraduate, and I hadn't thought about it for, for, uh, uh, for a couple of decades now, and that is, <clears throat> I'm sure you're familiar with this, uh, Mill's methods, especially the method of difference, um, and, you know, th these were codified in the middle of the 19th century, and he basically says uh, you take similar conditions and if uh, you introduce something different between them, uh, then uh, the result will be caused by that thing that you introduce if you see some variance there. Um, and he codified this all, all relatively nicely, and I remember that uh, at my very good liberal arts institution, we, we read about the method of difference. And it's actually uh, mentioned in a lot of uh, books on the creation of natural, or the sort of finding of and setting up of natural experiments themselves. Let me um, uh, talk a little bit now about what we might call historical versus natural exp experimental or um, comparative explanation. I know many of my colleagues uh, would say uh, that, um, that there is some value in simply understanding that there is a lot of value in simply understanding what happened when, aside from the question of why. And there is a certain, I guess I might even call it journalistic moment in the historical sciences, which is not present in uh, what are sometimes called the nominological uh, social scientific disciplines like anthropology and sociology and, and, and economics. Uh, much of what historians do is, as I say, simply f find out uh, what happened when they uh, re record and verify the occurrence of of events that that much of the historical discipline is focused on this documentary practice um, how should historians split their time between documenting what happened and explaining what happened using the natural experimental or comparative method they have to do both because um, if they do either alone, they have something that either is of low value or not explanatory. If all that you do is document what happened when, then you're not in a position to offer explanation. Yeah. Yes, you are in a position to offer something that reads well and is exciting. And yes, I love to read um, of what happens when type history. You don't have to believe that the explanations are correct. It's exciting. It's as exciting as would be a novel. Uh, you just should not make the mistake of believing that it provides explanations. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if you want explanations, it's important to have a larger context and to do comparisons. But you can't do comparisons unless you understand correctly what happens when. Mm -hmm. So you have to start out with what happens when type studies in the different areas um, in different places you're comparing. Mm -hmm. I can give you an example. Mm -hmm. Please in do. the field of ornithology, the study of birds, which is one of my other specialties. Until about 30 years ago, lots of ornithologists did the equivalent of what historians would call what happens when, except in ornithology, you call it this bird does this and that bird does that. <laughs> you publish a study in which you report what the red-breasted sapsucker does, mm -hmm. and you describe in a great deal of detail, loving detail, everything that the red-breasted sapsucker does. You may devote your life to the red-breasted sapsucker, and you have an you end up with an accurate description full of nuances and deep understanding accumulated over a lifetime of what the red-breasted sapsucker does, but that offers no generalization, mm -hmm. and you don't know whether your explanations are correct, because you haven't you haven't gotten any other variables. Mm -hmm. If you want to know whether the explanations are correct, you have better go out there and compare the red-breasted sapsucker to the yellow-naped sapsucker, which has some differences. And if you discover that those that what you observe with the rest of the red-breasted sapsucker is also true for the yellow-made sapsucker, then you know that that effect is independent whether it's got a yellow-made or red-breast. Mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's a long-winded way of saying that over the last 30 or 40 years, in the ornithological literature, there are lots of people who still in study individual birds, but they now understand that you have to compare your individual bird with other birds. At minimum, you have to begin your paper by setting a wider context 
posing the questions that you're going to study in the red breast staff sucker, and then you go on with the red breast staff sucker. Mm -hmm. And more and more ornithologists will do studies in which they actually compare the red breast staff sucker to the young late staff sucker. Mm -hmm. So that's a long-winded way of saying that historians as well, yes, you got to get your facts correct about what happened when, but if you stop there, you have something that's descriptive, your explanations are at best undocumented and quite possibly wrong, mm -hmm. and you really want to go on and do comparisons. Yeah, no, I think you're entirely right about that, although I would say that uh, many of my uh, colleagues um, do stop there, that they are very interested in the uh, establishing of uh, facts. I guess that's what I would call them. They, it's a little bit like ethnology. I guess that they never get path ethnology, if that's the right word for what biologists do. They, they want to find out. I have a friend, for example, one of the smartest guys I know. Uh, he has spent much of his career in my own field trying to find out how many wives Ivan the Terrible had. Now, this would be something you think we would just know, but the documentation is actually quite complex. And again, he has spent thousands and thousands of hours and uh, much of his considerable brain power just trying to find out how many wives Ivan the Terrible had. And I think that most historians would say that's a, that's a valuable project. Um, on the other hand, I think many historians, and I may be speaking out of school here, think that um, grasping toward this more general knowledge and particularly using uh, the comparative method or the natural experimental me method has pitfalls that uh, historians should be very concerned about. Well, one of them is a kind of, uh, let's just take them by turns, one of them is a kind of dilettantism. Um, historians don't like to do something called relying on the literature. So I have you know, many, many historian friends of mine, they want to take things back to primary documents in their original languages. They don't think that the, the literature, quote unquote, can really uh, bear up under close scrutiny, that you will, in fact, be a kind of dilettante if I, say, as a Russian historian, attempt to compare 16th century Russia to 16th century France. Um, do you think that argument has merit? Uh, it, has, it has some merit, and it also has pitfalls of its own. Yes, the method of natural experiment has pitfalls. Yes, the method of manipulative experiment has pitfalls. Yes, the method of narrative history also has pitfalls. Whatever method you have used, you have to be aware of the pitfalls. The long list of pitfalls in the comparative method include the question of site selection, the question of delayed outcomes, mm -hmm. the question of correlated variables, the question of seeking mechanisms that aren't provided by mere statistical correlations, the question of the number of systems you have to compare to extract your conclusions, the question of operationalizing, the question of quantification. Mm -hmm. Yes, those are all pitfalls that you have to employ, you have to master in pursuing the narrative method. You have to master those pitfalls just as you have to master the pitfalls of the narrative method in history. So that's perfectly correct. Where you get into difficulty is that too many historians, my guess is the majority of historians, throw up their hands and say, look, look, the comparative method has pitfalls, and therefore we're not going to use the comparative method. Instead, I'm going to devote my entire life to studying the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to touch the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> I've devoted my life to the American Civil War. If a student of the Spanish Civil War talked about the American Civil War, I would say that he's a dealer <laughs> Um, I spent 40 years on the American Civil War, and I still don't understand it. But what is the Spaniard coming in and talking about the American Civil War for? And in turn, I wouldn't dare say anything about the Spanish Civil War because I haven't spent 40 years studying it. On the other hand, if you switch and if you study something else, yes, you don't have 40 years of background, but you have a fresh perspective. You notice things that the expert on the Spanish Civil War has not noticed. You broaden your own knowledge base, and you can contribute things from your outside perspective. So there are general questions about civil wars that aren't addressed at all by all those experts on the American Civil War or the Spanish Civil War alone. In fact, in ornithology and anthropology today, one will not be permitted to do the equivalent of publishing a paper on the American Civil War if you did not begin by at least 
setting general questions about civil wars more broadly. Yeah, that's fascinating because it is entirely the opposite case in history. Um, there are special journals, comparative studies in society and history, for example, uh, in which uh, comparative study is encouraged, but most, the vast majority of historical journals now would uh, not favor any paper that did anything um, but a kind of narrow monographic treatment of a particular time and place. I, I'm, I'm virtually certain of that. And part of that has to do, we'll talk about that a little bit in a second, part of that has to do about the way the historical discipline is structured, which is actually quite odd if you think about it. Um, why don't we simply talk about it right now since it's apropos. You probably know that uh, most historians are, are generally trained to be experts in one particular time and place. For example, I was trained as a Russian historian, but more particularly I was trained as an early modern Russian historian, which means that I studied the period roughly 1400 to roughly 1700. There's kind of a bright line at 1700 with Peter the Great. Um, I, uh, I, I did study later periods in Russian history, and I also did study some uh, European history. I studied no American history, no African history, no Asian history, nothing else. Um, anything that I've gained in those fields, I, I learned on my own. Uh, also, I should say that a reflection of this disciplinary or sort of national historical uh, focus is the way in which um, history journals are um, generally arrayed. So, for example, in my field, the big journals are um, all Russian history journals. So, for example, there's a journal called Russian History Istvar Rus or um, Slavic Review or Kritika. Uh, these are the big journals, and so you're expected to publish in those after you write your monographic work on, let's say, Ivan the Terrible's Wives. Um, so uh, from cradle to grave, really, historians will study one time and one place. If they expect advancement in the field, they will publish in the journals that service those fields, and then they will, of course, uh, work with editors who edit books, uh, again, in those times and places. Uh, so the entire discipline is structured in, in this, this way to focus people on um, really narrow times and places and to exclude the possibility of uh, the natural experimental or comparative method. Um, I, I, perhaps it, it's, it's, um, I've, I've, I've led the answer a little bit, but what, what do you think about all this, and should the historical discipline be restructured in some other way? I think yeah, I've been struck by what you say because I work in different fields, because I've worked in... <clears throat> biology, field biology, laboratory biology. I've worked in linguistics, anthropology, history, and geography. I'm fascinated by the differences between different fields. And history, by the standards of all the field, really is a peculiar field. Among the scholarly disciplines that study the history of human societies, there are historians, but there are also sociologists, and there are political scientists, and there are anthropologists, there are archaeologists, and so on. Among all those scholars studying human societies, um, historians are, I would say, the most, by far the most narrow, the most under-equipped, um, the ones whose training penalizes them um, the most. I'll give you a couple of examples. I was once chatting with a historian friend who had, he was senior and risen, risen to be provost of his university. We were talking about these issues of specialization, and he told me, I, um, I am broader than most historians. My specialty is late 19th century Germany, <laughs> but I've also studied late 17th century Austria. I'm really broad, and you know, I, I had to avoid collapsing in laughter. Yeah. Here he's studying European German-speaking state societies in the 1700s and 1900s. Yes, it is broader than focusing on late 19th century German history alone, but still it's pretty narrow about like the world history. Mm -hmm. If you, I would say that if, here's why it's a tragedy <clears throat> historians. If what you want to do is understand late 19th century German, German history. Let's take a more modern example. If you want to understand the rise of totalitarianism mm -hmm. in Germany in the 1930s, is no way that you're going to understand that just by studying Germany in the 1930s. The only way you can understand it is if you understand Germany in the 1930s, but you also look at Italy of the 1930s and France of the 1930s, 
and Brazil of the 1930s and Germany of the 1890s to understand why Germany became totalitarian and Italy was totalitarian before that, but France and Britain were not, and Germany was not totalitarian in the 1890s. That's to say, even to understand really narrow historical questions, you're not going to be able to come up with explanations unless you have a broader context. Mm -hmm. And people have done just the study that you suggest. It is kind of a natural experiment. Uh, they are uniformly in sociology departments, I would say. None of them are in history departments. I'm sure that some listener will call me on the phone and tell me I'm wrong, but uh, when I think of the great his uh, comparativists, they are uh, all either in uh, something like the government department at Harvard or political science department generally, or in the sociology department. You know, take Beta Scotchball, for example, is in the um, sociology department at Harvard. And there are many other people that I could, could mention. She just is somebody that people might know. Um, I know, for example, we are conducting a, um, a search right now here at Iowa and uh, in Chinese history. Uh, and um, uh, we get Chinese historians, uh, people that have studied uh, China their entire lives. I think that historians would respond to what you've said, and by implication what uh, I believe too, uh, that you need to spend that 40 years to understand what happened when, that there really is no substitute for that kind of detailed knowledge. Do you think that's true? I would say politely that's rubbish. If, if, you want to, if you want to understand what happened, what happened when, what you must not do is study that subject for 40 years because, because you will not have a frame of reference. Instead, if you want to understand what happened when, you'd better look at some, some other geographic areas and some other time frames to have a basis for comparison, to be able to ask questions. The cruel reality is that Historical questions are being studied now by people who've been trained as historians, but also by people who are trained as sociologists and economists and various other things. When I talk with friends in history departments in the best history departments around the United States, and I ask them, so how does your university view you historians, and are you getting the resources that you need? A typical answer that I'll get is, my historian friends tell me, well, we think that our university doesn't value us and they don't appreciate what we are doing. And then I go and talk with the dean and the provost and the president of these universities, and I ask them, what do you think of historians? And they'll tell me, well, frankly, we pay our historians less than we pay any other group of people in the social sciences, except occasionally the anthropologists, pay more <laughs> our political scientists and our archaeologists and our anthropologists and our sociologists because we regard them as more valuable. Their conclusions are of, of more validity. They have a broader technical training. Um, they can answer fundamental questions such as what are the conditions for the development of democracy? That's an important question that mm -hmm. you have to in different places. So the sad result of all this is that um, historians are losing ground to other disciplines that are studying basically the same questions but that have a broader methodological base. Historians are getting underpaid, and historians are not getting the grant funds to do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I quite agree with all of that. You should come to Iowa and talk to um, the administration here. I'm sure you would hear something quite Similar. And since Iowa is a public institution, a little bit like UCLA, you can actually just look up everybody's salary. <laughs> uh -huh. And I know that my wife, is in, who is in the math department here, she makes a lot more money than I do. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. So let's um, imagine for a second, let's conduct a thought experiment. Let's say you are um, uh, king of the world or maybe just dean of the uh, uh, Faculty of Arts and Sciences at, um, at the University of Iowa and you restructure our graduate program in history. Uh, what, what should we do in order to produce historians that are, by your lights, of higher value? I know that that's really putting you on the spot. If you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. But no, no, I'm, I'm happy to answer. The reason the reason I began by saying "wow" is that there are lots of things that I would do. One thing that I would do is require a broader methodological base. I would require students to to study comparative methods in other fields, for example, at least to read a textbook or some papers in epidemiology to read some papers in field biology. 
I would require students to take at least some elementary quantitation and some ele elementary statistics. <clears throat> it's no fair for a historian to say, this changed, this is more than that, this is less than that, he caused this or she caused this, unless you test it. Otherwise, you've just got an empty assertion. I would require historians to begin with some expertise in different areas. So I would, for example, I would not permit a historian to specialize in late 19th century French history without also studying the history, late history of the Inca Empire mm -hmm. and perhaps the formation of the Hawaiian state, mm -hmm. not to mention early 16th century Austrian history. Once historians get out um, and have gotten their PhDs, if I were an editor of history journal, I would not accept an article that began straight in with the American Civil War or late 19th century French history without posing some general questions about civil wars more broadly, about the questions that would be studied in late 19th century France. And if I were sitting on a tenure or promotion committee, um, I would be really suspicious of people who had devoted the last 30 years to studying late 19th century um, French history. I would reward people with with um, broader expertise because I would expect them to be coming up with more interesting findings and asking more interesting questions. Mm -hmm. And finally, I would pay them more. <laughs> well, from uh, your lips to the dean's ears, I, I think all of that is wonderful, and I, I would like to see that done as well. Um, as you probably know, it would mean a restructuring of many of the incentive systems, so to say, that works within history now, uh, because there is such a premium put on national history, and particularly the study of uh, of, of small segments of natural history. You know, so you know, I, I know historians that are are focused on particular years in particular places, and will uh, study them for the rest of their careers, and they will come to know everything about those places. Uh, as you say, I, I think that um, they really do the field a disservice, and it isn't their fault by not comparing the things that they study with the things that other historians and political scientists and anthropologists study. I think it's too bad that they don't do that. Um, I try to encourage that in my, my own students, and I know that I've done I've tried to do a lot of it in, in my own work. I have a book coming out uh, soon, hopefully, that uh, does a lot of comparison across um, time and across uh, space. So uh, we'll see if, um, if I... Uh, if 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 I uh, am uh, am able to to bring it off in any sort of convincing way, um, why don't we spend some time talking about the particular uh, studies now? And one that I think that I I, re I really want to spend some time talking about, which is a perfect example, is is your own study of Hispaniola, the island of Hispaniola. Um, where the Dominican Republic and Haiti are. Haiti obviously has been in the news. A great tragedy has happened there. Uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives. And uh, so in this sense, it's, it's, it's very apropos. I imagine, uh, at least I'd like to think that the press has called you to ask you about this remarkable distinction between uh, the, um, the two countries on Hispaniola. Yes, the reason that you and I are talking now rather than 45 minutes ago is that this morning I've already done four radio interviews I'm in the United hear that. States, and there are several more coming up tomorrow with the United States and Canada and Brazil mm -hmm. um, because of the interest of Haiti. Um, Haiti is, is such an interesting, tragically interesting natural experiment. Here's an island, the island of Hispaniola. The island of Cuba is a single state today. The island of Jamaica is a single state today. The island of Hispaniola is two states because of the historical accident. Anybody who's flown by plane from Miami or Houston to Santa Domingo um, has seen that as a natural experiment. As you fly over Hispaniola, you look down from 30,000 feet, and there's this sharp line. And to the west of the sharp line, it's brown. And to the east of the sharp line, it's green. If you stand on that border, the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and you look to your west, it's mud and brown. And then you look to your east, and 30 yards away, there are the pine falls of the Dominican Republic. So this is an island. It's a natural experiment, an island that, for accidents of colonial history, got divided between 
two political entities that today formerly were a French colony in the West, Spanish colony in the East. Today are two countries, Haiti and the Dominican Republic, with very different outcomes. The Dominican Republic, per capita income, it's a developing country, but the per capita income in the DR is six times that of Haiti. The Dominican Republic has, what, 15 times more doctors. It has 25 times more electricity on a per capita basis. The Dominican Republic is the world's third leading exporter of avocados and the world's leading exporter of great baseball players like <laughs> and that's, that's partly because of small environmental differences. The eastern half, the former Spanish colony became the Dominican Republic, is wetter and gentler slope and deeper soils, so less prone to erosion. The western half, Haiti is drier, steeper, shallower soils, so more prone to erosion. But the big reason was different colonial history. France took over the west, Spain took over the east. France was much richer than Spain as of the 1700s. Spain was not only poorer, but was more invested in Peru and Mexico. And the result was that France um, imported lots of slaves to build up sugar plantation agriculture in its western half. Haiti became the richest piece of property in the colonial world. The Dominican Republic in the east, um, Spain put little money in, so the Dominican Republic had few slaves. The population of Haiti today is 85% Afro-American. population of the Dominican Republic is 10-15% Afro-American. Mm -hmm. The language of the DR is Spanish. The language of Haiti is Haitian Creole. The Haitians achieved independence in a bloody war against the French, after which the last thing that the Haitians wanted was to have the French back in mm -hmm. slavery. The Dominican Republic not only didn't want independence, the, uh, effectively Spain threw out the Dominicans, um, and the Dominicans were quite happy to have foreign investment and foreign integration. Gradually, although as of 1804, Haiti was far richer than the eastern half, mm -hmm. over the following two centuries there was a reversal of fortune to the point where the Dominican Republic became today much richer than Haiti. So there's a natural experiment of history. It's a two-point comparison, two countries on a single island. Mm -hmm. No, I find that fascinating, particularly in light of the fact that there's there have been, uh, I don't know if you've read the papers about this, but there have been pundits, let's call them that, who have uh, uh, attempted explanation of uh, why why Haiti is in such dire straits um, during this uh, natural calamity. And I, I think it's very refreshing, and I would encourage anyone to read um, your article in the book about uh, the comparison between the Haitian and the Dominican experiment, because it, it shows that things are much more complicated than you actually think that they are, especially if you only read the op-ed page of the New York Times. Um, I also was very interested in uh, the uh, Patrick uh, Kirsch's study um, of Polynesian islands, because I think this is something that the listeners will grasp intuitively. Islands, and particularly the Polynesian islands, are, again, a they're a kind of laboratory for uh, those interested in cultural evolution. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the design of uh, Patrick's study and the conclusions that he draws. Yes, Patrick Kirch, a great archaeologist at UC Berkeley. Uh, Patrick Kirch has a chapter in which he compares three islands colonized by, three Pacific islands colonized by um, Polynesians. Um, and they include Hawaii and Tikopia and Angariva. Actually, two chapters in the book do that. Mm -hmm. Because the fourth chapter, um, my chapter, includes a study by Barry Roulette and I, in which Pat Kirch compared three islands, but Barry Roulette and I compared 82 Pacific islands. One can distinguish two fundamental, two fundamentally different types of natural experiments. One is which you apply different perturbations. For example, Napoleon conquers or it doesn't conquer. Or you apply different sorts of perturbations. Hispaniola, Spain took the east, France took the west. But another type of natural experiment is where you apply the same perturbation to different initial conditions. That's what happened in the Pacific. Over the Pacific, history sprinkled Polynesians. They went out and colonized virtually every, essentially every day of the Pacific Islands. But the Pacific Islands were quite different. Some were equatorial, some were at high latitudes like Hawaii and Easter Island, some were high and young like Hawaii, some were old and flat, 
some were remote, like Easter Island, some are close to other islands. So you sprinkle Polynesians all over the Pacific with these different initial conditions and come back 3,000 years later, as Pat Kirk did, and lo and behold, you discover that the same people, the Polynesians, in Hawaii, they've developed a virtual state government. In the Chatham Islands, they reverted to being hunter-gatherers with really weak chiefs. And in Tikatia, they've developed a sustainable economy. And in Mangareva, they've undergone an ecological collapse with powerful chiefs. All that's the same people with different starting conditions. Both Pat Kirk and Barrett and Danny Rychak, who worked out the different starting conditions. Because we have so many different islands, 82 islands to compare, um, we can work out the effects of different starting variables. So, for example, among Polynesian islands, it made a difference whether the island was big like Hawaii or small like Tikatia. It made a difference whether it was at high latitude like Easter Island or equatorial like Fiji. It made a difference whether it was remote like Henderson Island or close like different Samoan Island made a difference whether it was high, like wide, or low and flat, like the T2Mos. We were able to detect the effects of nine different variables mm -hmm. as a result of having 82 different islands to compare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the strength of these variables is generally tested through uh, kind of standard uh, statistical techniques. I, I wrote a quantitative study once, so this is uh, a really uh, a series of uh, regressions on, on variables to, uh, to see exactly how powerful they are relative to one another. Am I right about that? Partly, there, there are different quantitative techniques, statistical techniques. Regression analysis is one. Multiple regression analysis is another. <clears throat> but we also use statistical techniques that don't involve regression analysis. There's a technique called pre-analysis that looks for clusters of variables working together. Mm -hmm. There's correlation analysis. And then historians um, often object. You know, I remember visiting an outstanding history department and talking about quantitation and statistics. So one of the historians there said, oh, I can't possibly do that because I'm studying the development of modern communications media in Japan, and how can you put numbers on television in Japan? Well, yes, there are things that are difficult to put numbers on, but one can at least rank them. Mm -hmm. say, there are lots of television sets, or there are a modern number of no television sets. When Gary Rollins and I studied Pacific Islands, studied deforestation, we didn't have a measure for how many trees the Polynesians chopped down, mm -hmm. but at least we could say whether they chopped down no trees, all the trees, half the trees, most of the trees, or a few of the trees. Mm -hmm. And then we could use the statistical technique called rank coordination. Mm -hmm. Historians who find it impossible to measure something in numbers, at least routinely they say there was a lot, there was a little, there was a medium amount. And then there's a whole area of statistics that can analyze those qualitative variables. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I learned about this when working in a corporation, actually, doing a business analysis, which is incredibly consequential because millions and millions of dollars are on the line. And uh, my bosses wanted to know uh, uh, actually quite specific things, but um, I couldn't give them that information because it didn't exist. But I could rank order them or order them relative to one another and do so uh, re reasonably accurately. And I think this is something that we do in our everyday lives all the time. So we, we, we say more and less, and we use more and less, and different sorts of rank orderings in explanations, which are uh, quite valid. Historians are very, uh, very, uh, very hesitant to do this kind of thing because they usually don't, uh, they, they don't think of comparison naturally. But I think if they did, they would uh, warm up to it a, a, a little bit. Um, another study that I was really uh, interested in, and, and I think the readers would be interested as well, uh, or the listeners to this show, is uh, the study in the fifth chapter by Nathan Nunn, um, and it, it is called Shackled to the Past, the Causes and Consequences of uh, Africa's Slavery. Let's talk about the consequences a little bit. Um, it would seem obvious to most people that slavery would be bad for uh, the long-term historical trajectory of an economy, but um, many things that are obvious are wrong. Um, what I really liked about this study was uh, the attempt to bring rigor to something that seems intuitively correct to us and uh, thereby prove it. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the design of that study. Yes, it is a nicely designed study because it recognizes the complexities in what seems a simple idea. As you say, one would start off with the, the prejudice that 
slavery is so horrible. The slavery must have been bad for the countries that were the sources of exports of slaves. And there are lots of studies that discuss the history of Nigeria or the history of Angola or the history of Rwanda. And they say, they look or cook or cook, and that's partly because of slavery wasn't as bad. But if you just trace the history of one country, you're not drawing reliable conclusions. What Nathan Nunn did in Chapter 5 of Jim Robinson's and I edited book was uh, he looked around Africa um, and compared dozens of countries, maybe 30 countries, some of which were sources of slave exports and some were not slave exports. But it was even more complicated. There was not, a, there was not just a single slave trade out of Africa, the transatlantic slave trade, but there were other slave trades. There was trans-Saharan slave trade, there's North Africa and Mediterranean. There was a slave trade from the East Coast, the Arab slave trade inland. There was a slave trade across the Red Sea. So Nathan Nunn looked at these various slave trades, and it's also the case that the slave trade ended in Africa. I think Brazil was the last place to have transatlantic um, export of, of slaves. So it ended, what, 140 years ago? You might say, well, it's now 140 years later. All those effects of the slave trade should be erased by 140 years of history. But what Nathan found is that, in fact, on the average, and it takes statistics to prove it, the countries that were sources of slave exports today are poorer than countries that were not sources of slave exports. And that's because of long-term effects of history, institutional changes that were associated with slavery and that have persisted to this day. Mm -hmm. This is a good example of how you have to be careful in designing these studies because a skeptic might argue that, um, again, kind of return to Napoleon, Napoleon... Uh, let's say, invaded places that were more prosperous already. Perhaps it's the case that the slave traders, and um, of course, Professor Nunn deals with this question, the slave traders entered places that were already poorer to begin with. How does he deal with that problem? That's something that, that Nathan Nunn, Nunn has to look at. Um, is it that, that the slave traders picked areas that were poorer to begin with? And so you can, while you don't have income measures for what's now Nigeria in 1530, you can look at other measures, such as measures of agricultural development and population size and so on. Um, and it turns out that it's not the case that the slave traders went to areas that were poor to begin with. If anything, they looked at areas that were richer, more productive um, to begin with. That just illustrates that whenever you come up with a what appears to be an explanation in natural experiment, you have to consider the alternatives and I think it also brings up a point that uh, many historians should take to heart, and that is that uh, th there's a tremendous amount of creativity in designing these studies. Um, I know this because I've read a lot of, uh, w again, when I worked in the corporation, uh, I read a lot of economics papers, and economists in particular, and it's perhaps it's the case that this is true of political scientists and anthropologists, I don't know, are wonderfully creative in finding proxies for things that don't have direct measures, and they're wonderfully creative in operationalizing uh, variables that look absolutely unquantifiable. And, and they, they thought of ways of doing this, which I, really never occurred to me. It must be something in their training. I don't know. But uh, th this finding of proxies for things, and again, operationalization can be very creative and rewarding work, and I think it can yield huge results. It's something that historians are n never taught to do that kind of because that kind of quantification really isn't uh, isn't part of our training, um, which I you know again we've talked about this is a, a little bit unfortunate. Um, Professor Diamond, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. You probably have uh, uh, networks banging at your door, leaving messages on your answering machine, wanting to talk to you about Haiti, and I, I really appreciate you being on the show. Let me. Um, close the interview by asking our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? What is your current project or next project? Naturally, I'm working on another book, and naturally, this book is a comparative book that looks at different human societies. Um, I'm uh, interested um, at the moment in looking at differences between differences in social variables among human societies. I'm interested in differences in treatment of old people. There are societies that kill or abandon their old people. There are societies that don't kill or abandon them, like modern American society, but treat them pretty badly by world standards. And there are societies that take wonderful care of their old people. Why? 
there were also different types of child rearing, child rearing around the world. There are societies that are extremely repressive. There are societies that laissez-faire, all right, come back 30 years later and look at the results. What are children like in a society that's extremely laissez-faire in bringing up children as opposed to a society um, which is repressive? I'm also looking at differences in, um, for example, dangers. There are societies that um, where people are at risk of being eaten by lions, societies where there are no risk of being eaten by lions. Societies differ in religion. They differ in how they um, educate disputes. Societies differ in their diets and where they overeat and do binge eating. So, in short, my next book is a comparison of societies around the world in these interesting social variables from which we can learn something today. Well, I... Uh Hope that when the book is done that uh, you will agree to be on the show. I imagine that you'll be, your door will be beaten down by people that want to interview you, but I hope that you can be back on New Books in History. With pleasure. Thank All right. Well, uh, we've been talking to uh, Jared Diamond, Professor Jared Diamond, today about a book that he's edited with James A. Robinson called Natural Experiments of History. Professor Diamond, thanks very much for being on the show. And thank you for your stimulating question. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jared Diamond about a book that he has edited with James A. Robinson called Natural Experiments of History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope that you have a great week.